0: Good morning, Redemption Hill family. I'm so glad that we get to kick off our Christmas series this morning and I'm glad that I get to lead you in that. My name is Derek Brover. I'm the director of Young Adults here at Redemption Hill and I'm really thankful to be able to teach you this morning from God's word. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this opportunity. I thank you for this season when we get to think about what you have done for us through Jesus God, I pray that your spirit would speak through me, that you'd help me to think clearly and speak clearly, and not just present my thoughts, but that you would use this time and this message for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I'm really glad to be able to preach this morning. Uh, As I said, um, you know, we love getting mail at our house. Um, When the mail arrives, it's kind of an event. Everybody's excited. The kids are excited. I'm excited. The cat is excited. Uh, but over the last, you know, few months, uh, it was it was not quite the same uh, because almost every day the mail would be those election ads, and uh, those went, you know, straight from the mailbox through like a tube into the recycle bin if you know what I'm talking about because they're so unhelpful, right? They just present, hey, by the way, you should vote for this proposition because of these reasons. None of them I look at and go, oh, wow, I should really look at this and give this some thought because they're so biased and one sided. It's like advertising for something. You see an ad and it's trying to convince you to buy a product and saying, hey, this product is the best thing ever. You don't really believe them. Um, It's kind of like a movie trailer, maybe like a really good movie trailer for a really bad movie. It looks good at the beginning, but you know that it's not gonna be good. If you actually watch it, you spend an hour and a half, two hours wasting your life, and all the good parts were in the trailer. Well, in some ways, I feel like every single uh, candidate and every single hero is kinda of like that. They, they look promising, they, they say they'll do so much, but they can't actually deliver on their promises. They're all disappointing. They're really good at delivering dream-crushing disappointment. And so what I'm gonna say might sound a little un-American, so let me just give a little caveat here. I love this country and I'm so thankful. This past week as we celebrated Thanksgiving, I'm thankful for this country where we get to participate in government and we get to vote. Um, We get to be a part of law being put into effect. We get to vote for representatives for us. It's awesome. However, this morning I'd like to say that the Bible says actually there's a better form of government. And it's not what you would expect, it's a monarchy. I think a monarchy is actually the best form of government and I think the Bible is saying that. And what I'd like to say this morning is that actually we need, desperately need a monarchy and that we should want this and want to be loyal to a king. And so I'm going to show you this morning that we need a king and that God did in fact promise a king, the king that we need, and that he was faithful to his promise and sent the king that we need. And if that's true, I think that should inspire a loyalty to that king that is greater than a loyalty to anybody or anything else. And so let's start with our need for a king. When we look at the very beginning, at Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see this harmony. And there's this perfect hierarchy where God is God of the universe. And then he makes the heavens and the earth and the sea and the plants and the animals. And last but not least, mankind. And he puts mankind, men and women who are made in his image. And they're like little gods and they're made to rule over everything else. And the animals are subject to the people and the plants are subject to the animals and the rocks, I guess, are subject to the plants. And we're all subject to God. And it's this perfect hierarchy. And what upsets this balance and this order and this peace is when Satan successfully convinces Eve, you know what? This this hierarchy, it's no good. You should actually want to climb up in the hierarchy. God said you could enjoy all of this and have everything and have dominion over everything except for the fruit from one tree. He did that because he's holding out on you because he knows that if you ate the fruit from that one tree, you would become like him knowing good and evil, you would become like God and he's trying to keep that from you and so when Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to become more like God and yes, they do become like God, knowing good and evil. But in many ways, they become less like God and more like animals. And the curse, the just curse on mankind and on the creation and on the earth is the source of all of our pain and difficulty. And God's solution to this problem, to this disharmony that used to exist in this monarchy, in this hierarchy, his solution is to choose Abraham and to make him into a great nation that he would then be king over. And so God says over and over to Israel, here's the plan. I will be your God and you will be my people. And you will, be, you will have joy in the land that I give you and you will know me and love each other. And so he rescues them from Egypt He brings them to Mount Sinai. He tells them everything that it means to be a part of his kingdom. The Ten Commandments and a thousand other laws. And he says, it's going to be great. I'm going to tell you what to do. You're going to love me and worship me. You're going to love each other. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work because they fail to keep the covenant. And as we see, like in the book of Judges, they have peace for a little while, but Then, because the nations around them that they didn't kick out of the land like they were supposed to, because they wanted things from them, they start wanting to be like them and worship their gods. And so they give up their loyalty to their God, and they start worshiping other gods. And so God graciously allows them to be oppressed by these other nations that they admire. And then they come back to God and say, God, please help us. And then God graciously raises up a judge and a savior, who's kind of like a king, but not a king. And he rescues them, and then they have peace again. And then eventually, they devolve back into idolatry. And the cycle continues over and over again, and the book of Judges has this refrain, and the book ends with this refrain, and it says, but in those days there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is not just Israel's problem. This is our problem. We need a king, somebody good and powerful to connect us back to our God. We think that being able to do whatever we want would give us freedom. But actually Romans one says that if we do whatever we want that's actually an expression of God's judgment. That mankind turned away from God and wasn't grateful and didn't wanna worship him and instead worshiped things. And God in judgment actually said, go ahead, do what you want to our own destruction. Have you ever had this experience, maybe when you were a kid or maybe if you are a kid, where you keep asking your parents over and over again for the same thing and they keep saying no and they keep explaining why this is no good, that you shouldn't want this, this is not a good idea, You keep asking. Actually, the scariest thing is when they say, you know what? Go ahead. Do what you want. And then you might feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that, actually. They might have a point. You think maybe they're right. Because we would rather have somebody care enough about us to protect us from hurting ourselves than abandon us to do what we shouldn't do, which will destroy ourselves. So Israel needed a king. And we needed a king. And they recognized their need for a king at some point. And they said, you know what? We need a king like these other nations who have these strong, powerful leaders who stand in front of their their armies, who lead them to battle and shows them how strong they are. And so they demanded from God's prophet Samuel, hey, give us a king. And Samuel's like, wait a minute, I don't know about this. And he asked God and God said, yeah, this this is actually a problem. They're rejecting me as their king. They're jumping the gun on this thing. They want a king right now. They want a king like the other nations. Warn them. And so Samuel tells them, hey, you guys don't really want this. You shouldn't do this. And they say, we we don't care about the consequences. We want it. So God says, okay. And he gives them Saul. Who, like the movie trailer for a really bad movie, looks good at first. But is actually a tremendous disappointment. And in fact, almost every single one of Israel and Judah's kings are tremendous disappointments. They're either too weak and they know what's right but fail to do it, or they exercise too much power and abuse God's people, make pragmatic alliances that they shouldn't for money, for power, and at worst, they're like Ahab and Jezebel who were really bad and actually murdered a private citizen to take their property for their their summer home, basically. So, We need a king, but we need a good king, who is not only powerful, but also good. Well, God promises to send us the king that we need, and his promise begins with David. David was God's choice for a king uh, over against Saul, and David wasn't like Saul in that he didn't really look the part. He wasn't tall and strong the way Saul was. He was a young shepherd, the youngest of eight, who lived in a little village called Bethlehem. But the reason why David would make a good king is because David loved God. And this is surely the point of the story of David and Goliath. It's not that the little guy beats the big guy. It's that when David came to that battlefield and he saw the Philistines and all their strength and Goliath and all his massiveness with his He was super buff and had his giant weapons and armor. And then he looked over here and he saw the Israelites who looked not not that impressive and had a king who was hiding, King Saul. He didn't think, oh, yeah, this is a difficult situation like they did. They were quaking in their sandals over here thinking, how can we fight this Goliath? But David looked at this situation and said, this is ridiculous, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who mocks the armies of the living God? God made a promise to us that this would be our land, that we would live here. And he believed that God was actually their king. And he believed it so much that he actually was willing to step onto the battlefield with a couple rocks. And his faith in God was rewarded. But as good as David was as God's choice for king, he ultimately was also a moral failure. And so God's promise was not just for David to reign for a time, but for David to begin a dynasty that would last forever. So in 2 Samuel 7, God makes this promise to David and he says, I will establish your house forever. There will always be a son of yours reigning over my people. This promise was probably difficult for the people of Judah to believe at times because they were taken away into Babylon. They were tossed around from the Babylonians to the Persians, to the Greeks, to the Egyptians, to the Syrians, and eventually to the Romans. And some of these nations restricted their freedom and their lives and their ability to worship God. Others just straight up oppressed them and violently slaughtered them. And so, you would think that maybe this hope in a a dynasty from David's line would diminish, but actually this hope becomes stronger because God sends prophets to explain further that it's not just a dynasty and multiple Kings that will come from David, but it's in fact one man who will come from David who will reign forever. And so the prophets begin to explain who this person is. And Isaiah helps us with this. And he says things like this in Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of Hosts will do this. God will put the son of David on the throne and he will reign forever. Isaiah says that this branch, he, he, he talks about Judah being like a tree that's cut off, the nation of Judah but from that stump comes a shoot of Jesse. Jesse Jesse's David's father. So from David's family comes a shoot, comes a king. And he says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Well, what will this king be like? And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You see, this king will be clothed with righteousness and he will bring justice for God's people. God will be with him and he will be powerful and good. This is not just for Israel, but this is for the nations. As Isaiah continues to explain in these final 20 chapters or so, he talks about this servant, and he says that this servant will establish justice in all the earth, that every nation will be under his reign. This actually fits with an ancient prophecy that was even farther back when Jacob, Abraham's grandson, was on his deathbed and he was talking to his 12 sons. He chose Judah and he said, you are actually the chosen tribe. The nations will serve you and your tribe. David began to fulfill that, but ultimately it was the son of David who would fulfill that, not just for Israel, but for us. Friends, we need a king. We need someone good and powerful. Israel needed a king to cast off their oppressors. By the time it gets to the New Testament, the Romans have taken over, and again, they have no king from David's line. This stinks. They want their freedom, and they're longing for the Messiah, which means anointed one, or in Greek, the Christ, to reign. Where will the son of David be? But if we think that what they really needed was a king to just defeat the Romans, then we make the same mistake that they made. And in fact, we could make a similar mistake right now. If we think that we need a leader to fix for us our problems, our problems in our heart, our racism, our problems in our culture, our division, our problems with our health, with this virus. If we think that any one man or woman, mere man or woman, can help us with those things and rescue us, then we're mistaken. Because at best, if we had the most amazing vaccine today, it would prolong our lives and our fundamental problem from Genesis three onward would still be here because we will still grow old and get sick and die. And we will still become isolated from the people we love and separated from them through death. And in our hearts and in our actions and in our words, we will still see the curse of sin that removed the harmony that originally existed. So we need a king who doesn't just cast off our oppressors or gives us health, but we need a king who will save us from sin and death and ourselves. God promised this king in the son of David. And this king is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I would like, as we begin this Christmas season, I would like to look at this announcement to Mary in this context, that this good news that this young woman received was not just good news for her, but it was good news for us and for every nation. And I'd like to read that from Luke chapter one. You know, this announcement is made by the angel Gabriel Gabriel is introduced to us in the book of Daniel. He was the angel who is named in Daniel, who delivered these prophetic visions of the apocalypse and of the end of time to the prophet Daniel while he was in Babylon. That same great angel, Gabriel, comes to this young woman, Mary, and says, I have news for you. And this is Luke chapter one, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel says to Mary, your son is the Christ the Messiah, the son of David, the promised king. And he's the son of the most high. Your son is the hope of Israel and every nation. He is what we need. He is going to be the good and powerful one who is also a savior. Now this did not pan out the way that Mary and probably everybody else at that time thought that it would. Because Jesus did not become a powerful political ruler who destroyed the Romans. He went to Jerusalem not to take over and destroy Israel's enemies, but to die. And so in confusion, of course, they didn't understand how could he be king and be defeated by the people that our king was supposed to destroy we think that we're really smart in this, but actually we just have the hindsight of the entire Bible, which lucky us, pretty cool. We get to look back on this and say, okay, Jesus said that his kingdom actually started here, but that it is consummated when he returns. So when he came, he came to serve and to save and to die for us. And that began his kingdom so that we can be connected to God again. But then he rose, and now he reigns, and he will return, and then his kingdom will be consummated. And in the meantime, his kingdom is manifest not by making people obey him, but through people, men, women, young, old, from every tribe and tongue and nation, willingly serving this king until he returns." we need a king. This is not an analogy. We need an actual king to reign over us. We need a king who is strong, who is powerful, and who is good unlike any other. God promises this king and the son of David, and God was faithful to his promise, and this is what Advent is about. This is what Christmas is about. And so as we begin to celebrate this season, we look back on this good news to Mary and we say that is the king that God promised, the king that we need. Because of that, I believe we should be loyal to that king. If this is true, we should have a joyful, confident, and radical loyalty to Jesus our king. A loyalty that is greater than our loyalty to anyone or anything else. Our loyalty is joyful and willing, not under compulsion. Um, I teach high school and I know what it looks like when someone's doing something because they just have to do it. That's called homework. And it's, it's usually not that pretty, right? Somebody does it because they have to. It's a mere duty. That's not what Jesus wants and that actually doesn't even make sense. Because loyalty to Jesus is more like the duty of eating ice cream or dessert on Christmas, and less like doing something that you wouldn't want to do. Because if you see that this is the king that we need, the king who saves us, the king who, means, who, who gives me a salvation that will never end, he will reign forever, and he loves me, and he'll never take advantage of me. If I see who he is and what he's done, then my response to him is willing submission and joy. This was Mary's response. Mary's response to this, listen to her joy. This is Luke chapter one, beginning verse 46, listen to Mary's joy. She says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. God has brought his king, he's been faithful to his promise, and he will bring justice. He'll take the proud and the oppressor, and he will bring them low, and he will exalt the lowly and the humble. And he's been faithful, and he will be faithful forever. So our loyalty to this king should be willing, joyful, because he deserves it. But our, will, our commitment, our loyalty to Jesus as our king should also be confident. You know, in um, our form of government, we have checks and balances, and I'm thankful for that. You probably are too. And uh, we, have, we don't have a king, we have a president, and he doesn't create the laws. We have a legislative branch that does that. He doesn't interpret the laws. We have a judicial branch that does that. He serves for a term or two, and that's it. We have limits because we as Americans don't trust a king. We don't trust any man or woman to have that much power over us because we know man's heart. But our king inspires a different kind of confidence, doesn't he? He has no limit on his power, and we're glad for that because he will never only serve himself or his party, he will always do what is right. He will never die. We never have to worry about him um, being elected or reelected, and so as there's been so much fear and anger and fervor during our political season, it's understandable if all of our hope is in a political leader, but we have a king And if you're confident that your king already beat death and rose again, then now I can engage, let's say in politics, with my friend and my neighbor without fear. They can misunderstand me, they could even hurt me, but my king is still king and he's still coming back. Now I can navigate the current pain that we experience in this fallen world while we're waiting for Jesus to return with confidence. I can deal with anything knowing that Christ is with me by his Spirit and that he is returning to bring me home. Our loyalty to him should be full of confidence. But our loyalty to him should also be radical. He is not simply a mere man. As Gabriel said to Mary, he's the Son of the Most High, he's God himself. And so Jesus, when a large crowd was following him in in Luke 14, he turned to them and said, I want to make sure you guys understand what you're getting into. Are you actually calculating the cost of how much this will cost you? Like somebody who's building something, you want to make sure you have enough money to begin with um, before you start and you can't finish. Or if you go to war or to battle, you want to make sure you actually can win before you go in there and have to turn back and run away. And so he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now Jesus isn't actually saying that we should hate our family, is he? No, but he's saying our loyalty to him is so great that all other loves and loyalties are hatred by comparison. And this loyal, this radical loyalty makes sense because he's God. And so I encourage you this morning that God has promised us what we need, a king. He has sent that king. And that's what Advent is all about. And if this is true, then we should have a joyful, willing, real, confident, radical loyalty to Jesus Christ as our actual king. I want to read for you from the end of the Bible, from the book of Revelation, this crazy book of Revelation which is so cool, where God gives these visions to John. And he describes here Jesus our king at the end. The description here is pretty amazing. And as you you hear this, I want you to think about who Jesus is. This baby that was announced to Mary, who was promised to Israel and to the nations, who was prophesied for over a thousand years, that we now look back two thousand years on. He is our Lord. You know, the most fundamental Christian creed was Jesus is Lord, and that meant if I'm a Christian, my loyalty, my primary loyalty is to Jesus as my king, more to Caesar, more than to Caesar, or than to anyone else, and that should be unchanged. Hear the description of Jesus in this crazy scene in Revelation five, and think about your king. John sees this vision, and there's the scroll that no one can open, sealed with seven seals. And John begins to weep loudly because nobody can open it. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He is also our God and the lamb who was slain. And you'll notice here that we will reign with him on the earth. We talk about this hierarchy in Genesis one. You might be uncomfortable with the idea, I mean, I don't want people to tell me what to do. I don't like that, no one likes that. But actually, this hierarchy is one where we have true freedom. We give up our freedom to receive our freedom. As Jesus says, we give up our life that we might save it. So think about Jesus this morning. Is he your king? Let's pray to him. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the son of David. You are the promised king, and we believe that you came to serve and to love and to die for our sins. But we also believe that you rose, that you are currently reigning at the right hand of God. And Jesus, we look forward to your return. And while we're waiting, Jesus, would, would you help us to be loyal to you, that our loyalty would not be forced, but that we would joyfully, confidently, and radically follow you as our Savior and our King. We worship you, Jesus. Amen.